Welcome to Whores Talk Whore. We're not really whores. We just like wordplay. Hello and welcome to Horrors Talk Horror. I'm Sharon. And I'm Melinda. Uh, we thought we'd try something a little bit different. Instead of talking about new or upcoming horror movies, we're, gonna, we're going retro and talking about classic films that laid the groundwork for some of the horror as we know it, or in many cases, heavily influenced the horror we see today. These are movies that probably made your grandparents toss their popcorn <laughs> into the air, faint in the aisles, or made your grandma clutch her pearls back in the day when these movies were shown in theaters. But the question is, do these movies still hold up today? That's what we're looking to find out. Uh, we'll try not to be too spoilery, but here's your spoiler warning for the entire episode. The movies we're going to be discussing are The Night of the Hunter and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Before we get into our discussion on these two films, I really want to talk about what makes a horror movie scary, because there's lots of movies that I've always found to be scary that many other people do not um, Right off the top of my head, Children of the Corn, that movie <laughs> terrified me so much when I was little, and I still find it scary to this day. But when I showed it to Spencer for the first time a few years ago, he kind of thought it was laughable and didn't think it was scary at all. I mean, whatever. Horror is subjective. But I did want to have a discussion because some people might be saying right about now that Night of the Hunter and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane aren't horror movies because they aren't scary. And honestly, they really aren't scary per se, at least not in like a jump scare sort of way. And by today's standards, it may be hard to see why these are even considered to be part of the horror genre. But first, a movie does not need to contain jump scares to be scary. And in fact, the best horror movies don't need to rely on jump scares at all. Movies can be psychologically terrifying and be considered a scary movie or a horror movie without containing a single jump scare. And often it's what you don't see that can make a movie truly terrifying. And if you have an active imagination like I do, you don't necessarily need jump scares, blood and guts, or a ton of kills to make a movie truly terrifying. Good night, mommy. We need to talk about Kevin, Rosemary's baby, the reflecting skin, I think are all very good examples of a good psychological horror movie. Also, a movie can just make you feel very, very uneasy, and that's something that I would consider to be a scary movie or a horror film. Gerald Game, great example <laughs> of this. I mean, I felt so uncomfortable throughout that entire film. And also, a movie can use tension to create a feeling of being scared or terrified Silence of the Lambs, I mean, to this day, I've seen that film many, many times, and I'm tense throughout that entire film. And also, movies can just be disturbing for lots of different reasons and still be scary. Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. I mean, honestly, pretty much anything that David Lynch has made is incredibly disturbing um, for different reasons and also possibly nightmare inducing, but there's not really a single jump scare in any of his films, except for that scene in Mulholland Drive with that person behind the dumpster at Winky's Diner. That gets me every time. <laughs> um, 
Fun fact, that's actually the person who plays the nun in the Conjuring movies. Yes, it is. But they're very unrecognizable in Mulholland Drive. So totally, totally. And agreed on all points, by the way, Sharon. I've just been like letting you take this (laughs) because I agree with you completely on all of this. Thank you. And I mean, for most of our (laughs) listeners, this is like horror 101 here. Um, But I still think we need to make a point of this before we get into this discussion because there probably are some people who are like, why are we talking about these films? They're old and they're not scary and blah, blah, blah. But music, lighting, acting, mood also play a significant role in whether or not a movie's scary, disturbing, induces feelings of uneasiness or creates tension, whatever. And both of the movies that we're going to be talking about today, I think specifically fall into this category for sure. So now that I've got that out of the way, (laughs) um, thank you for letting me unload my feelings. Um, Without these two movies that we're going to be talking about today, movies like Hereditary or Blue Velvet might not exist. And yeah, that's probably a little bit of an exaggeration, but these movies definitely made an impact on some pretty important movies to come. So without further ado, Mindy, would you like to start us off with Night of the Hunter? I would. And very well said, Sharon. Thank you very much. Um, And yes, let's start with this is one of my personal favorite movies in general. And yes, it embodies pretty much everything Sharon just said. So kind of a great way to start Night of the Hunter from all the way back in 1955. Um, So the cast of this film alone is the stuff of legends, but like old school legends. (laughs) Like these are the weird actors that like I would watch through my parents growing up, basically. Uh, The star Robert Mitchum had a long multifaceted Hollywood career. And his list of films is worth looking into for sure. He's hands down one of my favorite creepies on, on camera. Uh, I'm going to coin that, by the way. Maybe we should make T-shirts. Creepy on camera or creeps on camera. Um, and if you thought Robert De Niro was something in the in Cape Fear, you should really watch the original because Mitchum is in the role of Max Cady and see how creep-tastic that motherfucker is. Like, that character, he really makes that character fucking scary. Um, Shelley Winters was a big deal in her day as a stage actress and screen actress, uh, both big and small screens. She starred in Streetcar Named Desire on Broadway with Marlon Brando, and her film credits include A Place in the Sun, Lolita, The Diary of Anne Frank, and The Poseidon Adventure, among many others. And if you watch the original Roseanne series that didn't suck, Shelley Winters was Nana Mary. Oh, yeah. And Sharon, did you know that Shelley Winters was Laura Dern's godmother? No, I did not know that. Isn't that awesome? That is awesome. Um, I, we love that Laura Dern. Side note. Uh, finally, the the third of like the major stars in this film, Lillian Gish, who plays Rachel, a.k.a. the granny with a shotgun, uh, was known in her day as the first lady of American cinema. She transitioned from stage to screen around 1915 and mostly would be known today for her appearances on shows like Alfred Hitchcock Presents. There's a cute joke about her. If you watch the show Boardwalk Empire, one of the characters is complimented by her suitor when he tells her she's as lovely as Lillian Gish. And I went, aw. Her performance in this film, Night of the Hunter, is extraordinary for reasons we'll get into. But the point is, she was a superstar of her times, for sure. All right. So now that we know who's in the film, what the heck is this film about? 
So Night of the Hunter is set in Depression-era West Virginia and based on a novel by Davis Grubb and is the story of a misogynistic, religious fanatic, serial killer posing (laughs) as a preacher named Harry Powell, who is played chillingly by Robert Mitchum, and he murders widows for their money. He ends up marrying a gullible widow played by Shelley Winters, whose young children are reluctant to tell him where their father hid $10,000 that he had stolen in a robbery, and the preacher will stop at nothing to find that money. So what would that be worth today? $1955, $10,000. I'm going to say $150,000 by today's standards. Mindy, do you have a guess? No, I'm really bad at math. All right. Spencer's, but it would be a lot of money. <laughs> Spencer's looking that up for us. That's almost $100,000, like 98000 plus. All right. I overshot it a little bit. Still, <laughs> a lot of money back in the day and still a lot of money to this day. So, Night of the Hunter is directed by Charles Lawton, who only directed two movies, the other being The Man on the Eiffel Tower from 1949, which he's actually uncredited for in that film, And apparently he only directed the scenes in which Burgess Meredith appeared in. But he was also an actor who has appeared in over 64 films and TV series from the 20s to the 60s. So it's kind of astonishing that this was only his second time directing or I mean, many people say it's his only time directing. But damn, what an incredible job, because this movie is just so well made. I mean, production, uh, acting, cinematography, just like everything about this movie is just so impressive to me. It's amazing that this was his basically his first time directing. Totally. Seriously. I yeah, 100 percent. And it's sad that actually Night of the Hunter was Lawton's first and final directorial effort. Um, It's kind of funny that we're talking about this film being influential because in its day, it was essentially a flop. (laughs) Um, Upon its release, the film was panned by critics and audiences alike. Um, Lawton essentially said, fuck it, and never directed again. That's not a direct quote. Uh, (laughs) This is why I'm so grateful this movie exists and why uh, it's in my film collection and now Sharon's too, because this is like a must own, in my opinion. Yeah, about that, what Mindy was saying, Night of the Hunter was definitely not a critical or commercial success at the time. (laughs) But like many strange films from the 1950s, it would eventually receive a critical reevaluation. And more importantly, and thankfully, young directors began to watch it and let it influence their work. There is speculation that David Lynch even paid tribute to the film's first shot with his closing shot from The Elephant Man. Both scenes feature narrators among the floating stars and Night of the Hunter's dark theme of good versus evil and women falling victim to evil men is prevalent in much of Lynch's work. If you're familiar with Lynch, Um, if you're not, get familiar. (laughs) We don't have to tell you again, people. David Lynch is amazing. But Dennis Hopper's villain, Frank Booth from Blue Velvet, could easily be looked at as a direct descendant of Robert Mitchum's character from Night of the Hunter. Um, So I'm not sure which is creepier, to be honest. I'm going to go with Dennis Hopper. Sorry. (laughs) I mean... 
uh, those the scene with him and uh, Isabella Rossellini where they're in yeah. her apartment and he's yeah I guess he's uh, doing yeah. his thing he's doing his thing and he's calling her mommy <laughs> and he has the nitrous mask on that is pretty chilling um <laughs> but the coen brothers also made good use of the film's song leaning on the everlasting arms they use that in their film true grit and even the big lebowski has been influenced by night of the hunter the famous catchphrase the dude abides is actually a spin on night of the hunter's film quote Children are man at his strongest. They abide. So. Oh, my God. That gives me goosebumps. <laughs> I swear to God. Ugh. And above all, from a modern horror perspective, none have worn the film's influence on their sleeves quite like Ari Aster. The final shot of the treehouse in his film Hereditary is a direct homage to The Night of the Hunter. And in an interview he did with Film School Rejects, Aster revealed that the stunning and eerie image of the corpse underwater was at the forefront of his mind when crafting a specific aftermath shot that occurs halfway through Hereditary. So now knowing that, I have to rewatch Hereditary and try and figure out which scene it is. Um, Also, we will be talking a lot more in depth about that image of the corpse underwater because that is my favorite shot of the entire film. Yeah, yeah. And I knew there was something about that Ari Aster that I liked. Something. (laughs) He's doing something right. Um, And we don't usually discuss cinematographers. Which we should really do more often, honestly. We should, if they're deserving of it. I mean, when we're discussing Microwave (laughs) Massacre, I don't really think we need to talk about the cinematographer. Good Um, point. (laughs) But definitely, it's appropriate here. Uh, So the lighting and cinematography in this movie are just so incredibly, like, beautiful and dramatic and the use of light and dark and we'll get more into that um but stanley cortez is the cinematographer in this film and he elevates this film from being a good film to fan fucking tastic and if you haven't seen this movie hopefully you will want to watch it after listening to our discussion but i highly highly recommend finding a remastered version of Night of the Hunter so you can fully appreciate all the cinematography in its intended glory. Yeah, a really quick note, it is on Criterion Collection, um, but I know it's streaming in a lot a lot of places, I feel like, right now, but Criterion does a great job, so... And Criterion, the streaming service, has a bunch of extra stuff. I mean, I think we we watched an interview with the cinematographer, like, from the 80s or something, and, yeah, they have a bunch of extra stuff, so that is really worth it. Yeah, I agree. I saw a few clips on YouTube that were not remastered. And I was like, wow, it, it makes a difference. Like, you, yeah. you need to watch this film remastered or you're going to be like, what the hell are Sharon and Mindy talking about? This movie sucks. But yeah. And at the time, though, to think that they were shooting with that again, we'll get to it. But like the fact that they were shooting in that way at the time, you know, in 55 is just awesome. And yeah. It blows my mind to think about. But anyway, a little bit more about Cortez. So a lot of his early career was spent on fairly routine and undistinguished second features. It wasn't until he started working for filmmakers you may have heard of, uh, like Orson Welles and David Oselznick, that he Hmm. was able to fully develop some of his experimental techniques that he used 
in Night of the Hunter. And uh, one of his low budget outings is a gothic old dark house horror comedy entitled The Black Cat from 1941, which I have not seen, but that description alone makes me want to watch it. (laughs) Right. Um, But that impressed Orson Welles, who promptly hired him for The Magnificent Ambersons from 1942. And this was the first of two Cortez films generally regarded as visual masterpieces with beautiful lighting effects and clever angles, lingering close-ups. The second film being the one we are currently discussing. Among many of the haunting images throughout the film, the one that I briefly mentioned earlier is the scene with the corpse of Shelly Winters, her throat's cut, ropes tied around her. She's sitting upright in a big old convertible car at the bottom of a body of water with the sunlight just kind of flickering through the water, shining on her as if she was just napping in the sunlight. And her hair is flowing in the undercurrent, mimicking the surrounding seaweed in what looks like a completely surreal landscape while an unsuspecting fisherman from above happens to accidentally become witness to this ghoulish scene. And this shot is just so beautiful. And I just, I love it so much. Like I I kind of want this image framed and hung up in my house somewhere. I actually did um, when I first got my current TV. uh, It's just a regular, like it is 4K, but I don't really have a 4K Blu-ray or anything, but like the Humble picture's brag, so sorry. nice. That- <laughs> <laughs> it was like $200. It's not an expensive television. But like it, I was watching this movie on it and I actually did take a picture of my television screen during this moment because it looked so lovely, which is so weird. But I completely agree. It would look lovely. This would look good on your wall. <laughs> Twin Peaks reference. This shot it itself was actually one of the last scenes filmed and it was accomplished by a scuba diver and holding a special camera which was held on a wire so that it would stay still. Um, that's just messed up to me to think about but it the fact is amazing. I mean honestly you could take almost any one frame or movie still from Night of the Hunter yeah. and like that one frame alone would make a gorgeous black and white photograph that you can hang up in any art gallery or like displayed in your home, put it in a magazine and someone would look at it and be like, huh, that's a really beautiful black and white photograph. Totally. Totally. Um, While prepping for this discussion, I had on our good friend Mike Flanagan's movie, uh, Ouija Origin of Evil. And I happened to look up Uh, spoiler alert, I guess, if you've not seen all of Flanagan's work like we have. But uh, I was working on this and I happen to look up just as Henry Thomas's possessed priest character chases the mom and the older sister up the basement stairs while reaching out to grab and or stab the mom. Um, Not that Night of the Hunter originated that kind of shot. I just found it funny that as I was sitting there thinking about Night of the Hunter, I looked up and saw a more recent horror movie playing right in front of me with a scene that is almost identical to one of the scenes in Hunter. So the influences are just prevalent everywhere. Um, Robert Mitchum's preacher character famously has the words love and hate tattooed on the knuckles of his hands. And the film as a whole, as we've briefly mentioned, uh, is one big metaphor for good versus evil. Part of what I love about this film is the constant juxtaposition, youth, 
or innocence versus adulthood and corruption, danger and darkness versus safety and the light, and of course, hunter versus prey. You know who else is great at juxtaposition? David Lynch. Hallelujah! Yes, he does. (laughs) That's why I attempted it. Imitating the man from another place. <laughs> oh, is that what that was? <laughs> I was going to call an ambulance. I thought you were having a seizure for a second. I'm not a professional like Spencer. I can't talk backwards naturally and then reverse it and replay it. <laughs> a for effort, Mindy. Right. Thank you. Um, the first half of the film is centered around Shelley Winters' character of a single mother to John and Pearl, her husband having been sent to prison. Particularly when Mitchum's character, a wolf in sheep's clothing, arrives on the scene is when the shadows deepen on screen, uh, starting with John telling his sister Pearl a bedtime story only to be covered in shadow as the preacher himself stands outside their home, blocking out the street lamp. Good and evil, light and dark, Harry Paul in the shadows, huh, huh, huh? Uh, I love that phrase. We'll let that just stand, we'll let that stand on its own, everyone. I mean, it's kind of symbolism 101. (laughs) Everyone's getting a very basic crash course in film today. This is like film class for first graders over here. (laughs) Well, as they say in Reservoir Dogs, we're fucking professionals, people. (laughs) Uh, And whether you're religious or not, Mitchum's constant repetition of the hymn leaning on the everlasting arms is fucking chilling, especially when sung in such a slow, intimidating fashion as sung by his preacher character. I actually really love that hymn in general, but that's what makes it scarier for me when it's him. In contrast, (laughs) when the children escape to the care of Lily and Gish's character, Rachel, most scenes are shot in daylight. Rachel's home is one of love and filled with light, even when it's nighttime. And of course, there's the final showdown between Gish and Mitchum's preacher with the infamous granny with a shotgun scene, which is both stunningly lit, again, thanks to our lovely cinematographer, and shot from inside Rachel's screened-in porch, showing her and, and her shotgun in silhouette in a rocking chair with Mitchum outside seen in shadow through the screen, and it's nerve-wracking as fuck and beautiful and haunting. This is also one of my very favorite moments in cinema history, I think, where the preacher starts singing his usual hymn, only to be contrasted when Gish joins singing counterpoint in her lovely soprano, which is a stark contrast to Mitchum's deeper foreboding tone. And I seriously have goosebumps on my arms, like just talking about this. Also, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the women. Uh, Winter's character needed a husband. Or what good was she? I mean, that's like kind of the tone of the town. She's a single mom and she needs a man. She can't raise these kids alone. It's also kind of the tone of the 50s, I think, where women were expected to get married and be housewives and mothers and, you know, not necessarily go to school and get a career and, you know, be independent. That was just the way things were back yeah. then. Speaking of independence, uh, Rachel, in contrast, doesn't really give a damn. <laughs> and she has her faith, both in herself and her beliefs. And she's a good shot with a shotgun. And so she's very independent. She's a stark contrast to Winter's character. And nobody bothers her about it. And she cares for all of the children that 
nobody wants or has abandoned or whatever and don't give a fuck and that's why she's awesome so scare factor is this movie scary um i think it is uh i have kind of a funny story i was talking about this film with my uh like over thanksgiving i want to say like two years ago whenever it was okay to be in a room with people (laughs) during the holidays so it was probably two years ago and um my mom and I were talking about, oh, we love this movie. And out of nowhere, my aunt just like bursts out and is like, oh, my God, that scene in the basement when they're running up the stairs and he, I can't handle that scene. And we were like, whoa, what? Like, it just came out of nowhere. But she has this like horrifying fear of uh, this particular scene where the kids hide in the basement. And I don't want to say too much about it because uh, some folks... Like we said, this is going to be spoilery, but if you haven't seen it, I don't want to ruin everything, but uh, it is worth it. Ju- it is worth it. And it's creepy. And this movie does fascinate me. And I think it's scary. But my aunt is apparently very terrified of this one scene and we never knew it. <laughs> Sharon, um, do you want to mention anything that stands out to you? I'm going to go with the scene of Shelley Winter's corpse underwater. Oh, yeah. I mean, that scene's very haunting to me and it's. Definitely probably the most macabre scene of the entire film. I mean, I wouldn't call it gory, but it's definitely kind of disturbing in a beautiful way. Um, Yeah. Is this movie scary? I mean, there's definitely um, some some moments of uneasiness. It's definitely unsettling. And Mitchum's character is very... um, you know, he's he's the type of man who murders women and children. So I can see how back in its day, this would be a truly scary film to some people. Um, but today, I wouldn't say it's technically scary, but it definitely has its moments. But just um, overall, just the the lighting, the cinematography, uh, there's so much about it that I, I can see being the influence for so many of the films today that this this film to me still stands up over time and it definitely has its place in horror cinema history. Yeah, I personally this isn't a movie that I would say makes me stay up at night awake, you know, but it's scary in the moment and definitely psychologically scary. And yes, it's very much masterfully done. So it's a staple for sure. As for other film influences, there are way too many to count. Raising Arizona, Scorsese's remake of Cape Fear, The Man Who Wasn't There, Do the Right Thing, many others. But more recently, if you've seen Promising Young Woman, you're already familiar with this uh, film to a degree without giving too much away. And this is not really a spoiler, but if you know nothing about Promising Young Woman, you might want to fast forward like maybe 60 seconds. Um, I'm just going to say that Carrie Mulligan's character is juxtaposed with Night of the Hunter, starting with her parents literally watching an early scene of the film at one point as Mulligan is heading out on her adventures. And then, of course, later, as Mulligan approaches the final act of the film, we hear Pearl's haunting and creepy-ass lullaby, which in Hunter she sings as she and her brother are lost on a river, making their escape from danger. This song is played at a rather apt moment in Promising Young Woman, as we too realize Mulligan may be lost in the woods herself, 
uh, in a little too deep and over her head in her grief and rage, the predator becomes the prey, maybe. Huh? Huh? Yeah. Uh, it, it, actually, that moment in Promising Owen stood out to me more than other scenes. I thought it was actually kind of breathtaking. So, yeah, I thought that was uh, really well done incorporating Night of the Hunter into Promising Young Woman. And yeah. as soon as I heard the lullaby, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, goosebumps. Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. Well, let's move on to whatever happened to Baby Jane. Yeah. All right. So whatever happened to Baby Jane, based on the 1960 novel by Henry Farrell of the same name, was released in theaters in 1962 and was directed by Robert Aldrich. It's about a former child star who torments her paraplegic sister in their decaying Hollywood mansion. (laughs) Betty Davis and Joan Crawford infamously star as sisters Jane and Blanche Hudson, and they were also infamously known as being divas both on and off the screen. Damn straight. Um, This film is still revered as a classic, praised for its psychologically driven Black comedy and camp, but more importantly, Baby Jane is widely known for the creation of the, quote, psycho bitty subgenre. And that's a thing, a.k.a. the best name for any subgenre ever. (laughs) Um, Sometimes referred to as hag horror. Yeah. And I'm honestly not sure which I like better, Psycho Bitty or Hag Horror. But uh, (laughs) just to go a little further into how exactly this became a subgenre, Psycho Bitty combines elements of the horror, thriller, and woman's film genres, which conventionally feature a formerly glamorous older woman who has become mentally unbalanced and terrorizes those around her. The genre was established in 1962 with Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and is closely tied to the 60s, which marked the end of the classical Hollywood era. But Sunset Boulevard from 1950 shares many thematic similarities with Baby Jane, um, and some people even classify Misery from 1990 in that category as well. Well, at least we have something to look forward to in our old age, Mindy. (laughs) I think we need to co-write a psycho bitty horror hag movie. Maybe we can call it Menopause Massacre. (laughs) Horse Talk Horror presents Menopause Massacre. Or should we say Old Horrors Talk Horror? (laughs) Oh, right. There we go. Oh, man. You heard it first here, people. So uh, this is ours, by the way. We just need to come up with a plot, something like Sharon and Mindy can't stand the hot flashes anymore, so they start cutting bitches up. Hell yeah. (laughs) Tagline could be something like, if you can't stand the heat, cut up everyone in the kitchen. (laughs) I think this should be another t-shirt idea for us. I'm just saying. (laughs) I'm getting out of the kitchen. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So Uh Menopause massacre. I love it. (laughs) No one take that idea. All right. So as we mentioned, this movie is about two aging actresses. Betty Davis plays former child star Baby Jane Hudson, and Joan Crawford plays her older sister, Blanche Hudson, now a paraplegic who is dependent on her sister Jane to care for her. 
We are not told specifically how Blanche became paralyzed from the waist down until the very end of the movie, which we will not give away in case you have not seen this movie. But we are kind of led to believe throughout the film that Jane may have caused her paralysis purposely, maybe out of jealousy of her sister Blanche for being the more talented actress in the family. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. You got to watch the movie and find out. But... What makes this movie scary is that whatever happened to baby Jane definitely falls into the psychological horror category. (laughs) It's not just hag horror, people. Um, (laughs) Let's start with the way that Betty Davis's character, baby Jane Hudson, looks in the film. Oh, man. It's over the top, to say the least. But, like, everything in this movie is kind of over the top. So, Betty Davis's character looks like a garish <laughs> and demented 50-something-year-old woman trying to look like a little girl. Looks like. Doll. Looks like. Huh? I think it looks like she is. <laughs> I mean, basically, yes. She's an older woman who looks like a little girl, complete with blonde ringlets, Ooh. bows in her hair, and an adult-sized version of the frilly dress that she used to wear as a child when she would perform vaudeville acts with her father. Fun fact, uh, Betty Davis created her own makeup for the role of baby Jane Hudson. Director Robert Eldritch said it it closely matched his idea for the character's grotesque makeup, but he was afraid to suggest it lest it offend Davis. Uh, Unlike most of her peers in Hollywood, Davis was unafraid to wear ugly costumes and makeup if they enhanced her performance. Um, In her book, This and That, Betty Davis said she had a lot of control over how her makeup should be done for the film. She imagined the older Jane as someone who would just never wash her face, just put on another layer of makeup, Oh, so gross. (laughs) I know. And oddly not break out horribly. Right. Um, When her daughter, Barbara Merrill, first saw her in full Jane makeup, she said, oh, mother, this time you've gone too far. (laughs) I love it. It's great. Uh, So besides looking completely off, (laughs) Betty Davis's character is just like completely off. She's mentally unstable, narcissistic. She's an alcoholic and her mental health is rapidly deteriorating under the pressures of caring for her sister. And caregiver role strain is absolutely a real thing, but it just makes Jane take out her aggressions and her frustrations even more on Blanche. Um, Obviously, there's also the jealousy that I think she feels towards her sister as well. But knowing full well that Blanche is completely dependent on her for food, water, taking care of all the other activities of daily living that she can't do on her own, Jane decides to fuck with Blanche in horrific ways to psychologically break her down. (laughs) Uh, One of the most horrific scenes, in my opinion, is when Jane serves Blanche a dead rat on a silver serving tray for lunch (laughs) and then just cackles with glee as Blanche screams in terror. Um, And then there's another scene I think it might have been before the rat scene yeah. um, or possibly after. I honestly can't remember. Uh, but there's another scene where Jane serves Blanche, her poor pet bird served on a, a silver platter. So now Blanche is trapped in her room. Uh, she's confined to a wheelchair. She has locks on the outside of her bedroom door. Her 
bars on her window. Her phone is taken away from her. She's on the second floor with no wheelchair lift or way for her to get safely down the stairs without help from someone. And she's slowly becoming malnourished because she's being starved unless she wants to eat dead pets. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, things just keep getting worse and worse for her. Um, But we won't give away all the details once again in case you have not seen this movie. But Jane just keeps getting more vicious and unhinged until the unexpected finale of the film. But if anything, this movie is basically a cautionary tale of what happens when a child receives too much adulation. So (laughs) if you're a parent out there who's like constantly praising your child and telling them like how amazing and special they are, maybe like take your kid down a few notches (laughs) so they don't grow up and turn out to be like baby Jane Hudson. Be like, you're not that special. (laughs) You don't all get an award, all right? There's a first place, a second place, or a third place. You're not good enough. Sorry. (laughs) Try harder. This is not Parenting 101. We do not have kids. (laughs) Just throwing that out there. Um, Well, so if that's not enough of a show... Some might say and some do say that the real show actually took place off camera. So uh, buckle up because we're going to get good and gossipy. Normally, Sharon and I aim to look at films based on their cinematic merits, Um, especially for this podcast. We tried to save any hot goss uh, for after we've discussed the film or for post movie drinks after reviewing. Baby Jane is one giant exception. And frankly, we'd be remiss if we didn't go into the bitter rivalry between Davis and Crawford in real life, as it became heavily important to the film's initial success and ongoing legendary status. I'm going to get my popcorn while you talk about this. All right, cool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Also, everyone loves a good cat fight, especially between two divas, let's be honest. And I think it's safe to say that never again in Hollywood history will there ever be a rivalry between two stars that will ever be as petty and, well, bitchy as fuck as the rivalry shared by Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Let's get into it. Uh, First, there's the issue of promoting Baby Jane. Crawford was scheduled to appear alongside Davis on a publicity tour of whatever happened to Baby Jane, but canceled at the last minute. Davis claimed that Crawford backed out because she did not want to share the stage with her. In a 1972 telephone conversation, Crawford told author Sean Considine, apologies in advance if I mispronounced that, uh, that she urged Davis to see whatever happened to baby Jane after she had, after Crawford had a chance to see it herself. Uh, Naturally, Davis never responded. (laughs) So Crawford called Davis and asked her what she thought of the movie. Davis replied, and a quote, you are so right, Joan. The picture is good. And I was terrific, unquote. Crawford said, that was it. She never said anything about my performance. Not a word. Damn. That's all I got to say to that. Considine alleges that Davis's refusal to acknowledge her co-star's contribution to the film led Crawford to cancel the publicity tour. But before you feel sorry for our friend Joan Crawford, I'm legit not sure who was genuinely meaner in person, um, Crawford or Davis, but Crawford got the better of Davis when she upstaged her co-star 
that year's Oscar ceremony. This is so good. It is so good. And I'm just going to say, too, that like we don't there's more to this story and we don't have time to go into like all the shit that happened. So but I'm sticking to like the big ones. And yeah, this is amazing. So leading up to the 35th annual Academy Awards in 1963, Joan Crawford contacted the Best Actress nominees who were unable to attend the ceremony, offering to accept the award on their behalf should they win. Meanwhile, Betty Davis, who was nominated for Best Actress in 1963 for Baby Jane, by the way, still claimed Crawford lobbied against her among Academy voters. Spoiler alert, Davis didn't win that year. And for what it's worth, Crawford didn't even score a nomination for her role as Blanche. But I'm not done. It gets way better. So Davis lost the Best Actress trophy to Anne Bancroft, who, rightly so, won Best Actress for the film The Miracle Worker. Side note, not a scary movie. It's actually about Helen Keller and the teacher who taught her how to read Braille, um, which might not sound all that interesting, but that is a phenomenal film. Anne Bancroft... And a very, very, very young Patty Duke, who, aside from a fruitful film and television career, is Sean Astin's mama, are stars in that. But like Bancroft and Duke, they'll blow your fucking mind, their performances. Anyway, back to the Oscars, 1963. Anne Bancroft wins Best Actress, beating out Betty Davis for Baby Jane. Wouldn't you know, Anne Bancroft couldn't make the Oscar ceremony that year as she was in New York performing a play. She had, however, agreed to let Crawford accept the award on her behalf if she won. So Bancroft's name was called, the music swelled, and Crawford triumphantly swept on stage to pick up the trophy. Davis later said, quote, it would have meant a million more dollars to our film if I had won. Joan was thrilled I hadn't, unquote. See, both actresses accepted lower salaries for Baby Jane in exchange for a share of the film's profits. Davis considered it foolish for Crawford to have worked against their common interests, especially at a time when roles for actresses their age were so scarce. And I do kind of see that point. I respect Davis pointing out the lack of good roles for actresses over a certain age, I just don't know that Crawford straight up ran a smear campaign against Davis with the Academy purely out of spite. Um, I'm not saying that I don't think Crawford, that she wouldn't do something like that, just maybe not in this particular instance. Uh, Crawford had a notorious temper. Uh, That's a whole entire episode unto itself. But Davis was a master at throwing shade. Yeah! Right? Totally. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And that's that's pretty bitchy. Um, we might have to uh, uh, find a clip of her acceptance speech for Anne Bancroft and insert that <laughs> into the episode at some point. I'm I want to listen to that. I do not know what she said, but uh, I'm sure she threw some shade at uh, Betty Davis somehow. There's a really great picture of uh, Joan Crawford, Patty Duke and um uh, Gregory Peck, I think, because like I think Gregory Peck must have won Best Actor that year, and then obviously Patty Duke won for The Miracle Worker, as did Anne Bancroft, and so they're all like backstage at like that press showing at the Oscars, like after you give your speech, and then you go backstage to talk to the press, and you're holding your trophy, and like Joan is just like smiling and like looking up at Gregory Peck, and like it's just <laughs> angelic, it's a crazy, oh my god, and I I did read that 
after like that happened, Betty Davis just was like, let's leave and like left with the person that she was there with at the ceremony. Like she was like, fuck this noise. Wow. Oh, man. I know. Queen bitch rivalry aside, uh, Baby Jane has endured as a classic based on its own merits as a film. Um, I, I The film is held up significantly over time and holds an approval rating of 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, overall, the site's critical consensus reads, whatever happened to Baby Jane combines powerhouse acting, rich atmosphere, and absorbing melodrama in service of a taut thriller with thought-provoking subtext. Um, some of the initial reviews weren't all that great, though. Um, many were pretty dated even in their references so i just kind of picked one that i don't think i'll need to stop and explain the references for uh so brendan gill of the new yorker was somewhat negative about baby jane when it first came out calling it quote far from being a hitchcock it goes on and on in a light much dimmer than necessary and the climax when it belatedly arrives is a bungled languid mingling of pursuers and pursued still Betty Davis and Joan Crawford do get a chance to carry on like mad things, which at least one of them is supposed to be, unquote. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they both were, Brendan dear. They were both mad and vain as fuck. Uh, Speaking of Hitchcock, a retrospective review by TV Guide that was just from a few years ago, I want to say, gave the film four stars, adding, quote, If it sometimes looks like a poisonous senior citizen show with (laughs) over-the-top spoiled ham, just try to look away. As in the best Hitchcock movies, suspense, rather than actual mayhem, drives the film, unquote. That kind of goes back to your your whole psychological thriller uh, theory, Sharon. Uh, The film continues to inspire and frighten both makers of film and television alike, The James Wan of non-horror film and television, Ryan Murphy, uh, creator of such television shows like Nip Tuck, Glee, American Horror Story, and Sharon's favorite show of his, Pose, which is on Netflix. I I mean, seriously, does he ever sleep? Like, I'm out of breath just kind of reading that sentence. Oh, my God. Anyway, Ryan Murphy used the backstage battle between Crawford and Davis during the production of Baby Jane as the basis for his 2017 show, Feud, uh, Betty and Joan. Wikipedia says Feud was the first season of the Ryan Murphy television series. I thought it was just a miniseries, but whatever. Um, Anyway, the show starred Jessica Lange as Crawford and Susan Sarandon as Davis. And I have not seen this show, but I do plan to eventually... If for no other reason than to just watch Jessica Lang and Susan Sarandon create some hag horror. <laughs> Sharon, did you ever see that show? No, I haven't, but I I kind of want to. I've heard yeah. it's okay. Um, yeah. But I'm very curious to see how Jessica Lang and Susan Sarandon pull off their uh, Betty and Joan um, acting skills. And yeah, I would kind of like to see a little bit more of the the feud because who doesn't? love some good Hollywood gossip, right? Right? Hot goss. Yeah. I got that from you. I think that's funny. I can't <laughs> stop saying it. That is not for me. Trust me. <laughs> no, I know. But <laughs> There's that that's a phrase that has been used and should probably be retired, honestly. Um, you said it, though, recently, and it made me laugh. So it's been on my grind. <laughs> um, so is this movie scary? I mean, uh, psychologically speaking, 
I I think it has some merit. It's once again not scary in any sort of traditional way and by today's standards. I don't think many people would consider it to be scary. Betty Davis's performance is pretty terrifying though. I do have to say <laughs> that. Um and I I found myself yelling at the screen like throughout the entire movie just being like what are you doing or like you know try, <laughs> like trying to like um give a helpful hint to like Joan Crawford on how to like escape her situation. Um I I got really into the movie. I'll say that. Awesome. What about you? What are, what are your feelings on is it scary or not? Uh, yeah, I think it's scary in the moment because it has that good tension. And yeah, I could totally see, like, I agree. Like, I was just thinking of one scene in particular where, spoiler alert for the whole episode, I guess we've already said that, but Joan Crawford is trying to get someone's attention outside her bedroom window. And same thing. I was like, oh my God, what are you doing? Like, do this. <laughs> like, I just, and it's one of those movies that pulls me in like that. And even though I've seen it a bunch of times, I get really stressed out watching it. So, um, but yeah, I do. I don't, it doesn't keep me up at night. So it's not that kind of scary, but it is very, it, again, it's well done. It's a classic. And what in the moment you get into it for sure. So I think it's definitely worth a watch. Um, if not for just Betty Davis's performance alone, I just love that her daughter said, oh, mother, this time you've gone too far. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> All right. So there you have it. This is the first Movies That Scared Your Grandparents episode. And we're probably going to do more of these in the future because this was fun. And there's so many other classic horror, film noir, I mean, call them whatever you want to call them, type movies that are just great classics. And, you know, you may not consider them to be scary, as we said, especially by today's standards, but hopefully you can watch these movies and have some kind of appreciation for them that you may not have had before. Um, Because honestly, without these films... Jason Blum, James Wan, Mike Flanagan, John Carpenter, and many, many other filmmakers may not have created the movies that they've created without inspiration from these old-timey horror films. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you have to pronounce the E at the end of oldie, oldie oldie-timey? No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's how I picture it. Uh, Clearly, we're not film experts or critics, clearly, um, but understanding where we've been helps to inform where we are and where we're going. And with horror films, that's, it's no different. Also, I know I personally talk a lot about older movies or directors, uh, many of which we do hope to cover in future installments as they're genuinely favorites. But also, you know, many of these films are just as innovative or mind blowing today as they were in, say, the 1960s. Um, the director Igmar Bergman being a fantastic example or uh, Federico Fellini Um I can't tell you how many times I've been watching an older movie and very clearly recognized a trademark or trope that, say, someone like Mike Flanagan uses all the time, just as an example. Actually, I remember watching the movie Satyricon by Fellini um, with my friend Edward for the first time. And there was a moment where everything stopped, sound included. The camera zeroed in, curtains swept open, and a white horse was standing there alone mysteriously. And Edward turned to me and just said, so you think David Lynch is a Fellini fan? And guess what? David Lynch is a fucking Fellini fan and talked about his admiration for him in several interviews over the years. So 
I just think that this kind of stuff's really interesting, and hopefully you guys will think it's just as interesting as we do. Wow, I need to watch that film, because obviously that is directly from Twin Peaks. I mean, the horse and the curtains, that is a, like almost sounds like an exact shot from a scene in Twin Peaks that if you're a Twin Peaks fan, you know exactly what we're talking about. So, yep. Interesting. Yeah. Right. There's a another Igmar Bergman movie that I really want you to watch, too, that I'm not going to give any spoilers, but similar reaction. I'm down. I, I love exploring older films, even if I don't think they're um, scary per se, but just seeing the influence that they have on films of today that I know and love is, you know, I love learning about the history of film. So yeah, yeah, totally. Um, Before we sign off, Mindy and I want to give a huge shout out to Allison, our newest patron. Thank you so much, Allison. And also happy early birthday because her birthday is April 14th. I believe this episode is airing on the 12th. So happy birthday. We appreciate the support so much. So thank you. Also be on the lookout for a fun little thank you package coming your way via snail mail. And also I want to say that Allison has her own horror podcast called Who's There? A podcast about horror fans that Mindy and I are both fans of. So check out her podcast. Every week she interviews a new horror fan and they have great discussions about horror films and the horror genre in general. Um, I've described it as eavesdropping on a couple of strangers talking about one of my favorite topics, the horror genre. Um, But I always get good movie recommendations from her and her guests. Um, So yeah, definitely check that out if you have not. And you're looking for a new horror podcast. Yeah. Happy birthday, Allison. Woo. And also thank you, everyone else, for listening to us. As always, you can write us at talk horror at gmail.com with anything you want to share with us. Tell us what your favorite movies are that scared your grandparents. (laughs) Um, You can also send us your ghost stories, creepy stories, true crime stories, or whatever else we can read on our show. We have already received some great ghost stories from some people um, that we are very excited to read in an upcoming episode. So please keep sending those in. Yeah, we, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. I love hearing ghost stories from other people um please also subscribe to us rate and review us on your listening platform of choice it does genuinely help us get more exposure and if you are able to please do join our patreon and get early access to episodes the exclusive posts get a birthday shout out like allison did Uh, maybe even get some cool shit in the mail please join us if you can it's getting nice out there Get that vaccine if you're absolutely able to. Please be kind to each other. Be safe. And as always, thanks Thanks for for getting getting creepy creepy with with us. us. Sharon, do you want a beer? Uh, Oh, my God.